Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined today in studio, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So this is our final book of our 2020 Summer Book Club, and uh, I've really been loving reading this book. It's it's probably of the book's my favorite, just because it's such a compelling story. And the story is The Poker Bride. And we have uh, the great pleasure to be joined by the author today. Why don't you, why don't you introduce him? Yeah, Steve, thank you so much. Yeah, we are delighted to be joined today uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, Christopher Corbett, who's the author of The Poker Bride. Uh, welcome, Christopher. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we... Uh, Steve and I read a lot, and this book has been such a fun, uh, enjoyable read for us. It's got everything in it from tragedy and sadness to um, the victory of the human spirit, if you might say, uh, mixed sure. in with some great history, um, super informative, compellingly written. Um, but let's start out with you. So why don't you give us just a brief introduction um, of your long history as a journalist writer? Well, I, I was a journalist uh, in my native New England. I'm from Maine, and uh, I worked for uh, weekly and daily newspapers. And then I went to work for the Associated Press, uh, and they sent me to Connecticut, where I covered the legislature for quite a while. And then I came to Baltimore, where I was the news editor for the Mid-Atlantic States. Um, and uh, I also would come to write books on the side, so uh, one of the, which is The Poker Bride. And um, I've, uh, I'm, I've also wrote uh, Orphans Preferred, which is the history of the Pony Express. Uh, and uh, I've written other, other, other things. I did a lot of freelance work for magazines and newspapers and that sort of thing. Um, so, um, and I'm I'm still interested in writing about the American West. Unfortunately, it's it's not easy to travel right now, but uh, <laughs> that'll 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 eventually end. So, well, uh, when you're in the real American West, social distancing is fairly easy. I believe that's true. I, I believe that's true. I was out on the yeah. Pony Express Trail a while ago, and um, you yeah. got you got to look hard to see anything. But I think that's, the Pony that's, Express that's is how we met. I think you were out here about 10 years ago speaking on the Pony Express, and we met briefly then. And At uh, Snow College, yes. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so this, the story of the Poker Bride is, uh, a, I often mention to people that Mark Twain talks about not writing about mankind, but writing about a man. And I was very interested in putting a human face on an experience that we don't know that much about, and that is the experience of the Chinese in the West, and more particularly of Chinese concubines in the West. And that's how I found Polly Bemis, um, who was and is now and always probably will be known in Idaho as the Poker Bride. Um, I think uh, uh, most Americans are amazed to find that news of the discovery of gold reached Hong Kong before it reached Boston, and the Chinese wasted no time in coming to California, which they call Golden Mountain. Uh, there are accounts of people arriving there within within a year of the discovery of gold. In fact, the, the whole story that interests us, I think, for purposes of this discussion is that, you know, James Wilson Marshall was a millwright and a carpenter in New Jersey. 
who went out west and he was hired by Johann Sutter, who was an eccentric Swiss, uh, he, Sutter's Mill and his Sutter's Fort near what is today uh, Sacramento. And he found gold on the American River one morning. He was looking at a mill race. And um, that event is the event that, uh, that essentially launched the California Gold Rush. Uh, if you know J.S. Holliday's great book, The World Rushed In, the world rushed in because of that. In, in, uh, in 1848, January of 1848, when James Wilson Marshall found that gold, there were said to be 290 white men, which is how they counted people, living in Northern California. And 12 years later, when the Pony Express began running in 1860, there were a half a million people living in Northern California. And that, that is one of the great movements of humans in, in, in history. It's like a tidal wave of people. And it was all because of gold. So um, gold is the, is the uh, root of our, of our story to a great extent. Um, and um, you could actually, people often are amazed by this, but you could actually get from Hong Kong to San Francisco on a sailing ship in good time in 40 to 45 days. Now, it could take twice as long or even longer if you didn't have wind, if you didn't have, if you had a typhoon, if you ran out of water, whatever. But you could actually get there pretty quickly. But coming from Boston, you could have to go around the Horn at the bottom of, uh, of uh, South America. And that was quite a trip. Not for the faint of heart. Yeah. So, uh, we're, anyway. um, yeah, we're, uh, Steve and I are products of the, westward expansion into the middle of the Rocky Mountain region. And, and I have ancestors right. that took the wagon trains across to Utah and ancestors that came around the Horn in ships to California sure. and then sure. walked to Utah and yeah. in this exact same time. And you're yeah. right. Yeah. One of, the, one of the really cool things about the California archives in Sacramento is that they have what they call pioneer cards where you can see these are like their cards that record people's arrival at the time of the gold rush. And if you can date your kinsman to a pioneer card, that, uh, that establishes your bona fides as a real, as a real gold rush person. But <laughs> the information, everything travels so slowly that James Wilson Marshall found gold in January of 1848. And people always say, well, what about the 49ers? Well, the 49ers, <laughs> the problem with the 49ers is it took them that long for the information to get back to the East Coast. The newspapers in New York didn't print a word of it until August of that year. And Polk was president. He was apparently in no hurry. He didn't speak to Congress about it until December. So that's where you get the 49ers. So anyway, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, this, uh, it's, this is pre-Pony Express, pre-train, yes. pre-telegraph. Right. Right. Yep. All, all of that is all of that is true. Everything traveled very slowly. Well, tell us how. So, um, the poker bride Polly Bemis. That that certainly isn't her birth name, Polly. But no, it's not. How did you become? Uh, how did you discover Polly? Well, I was doing some journalism, and I happened to be in Idaho, and uh, uh, I was actually I was I was interested in a company that ran one of the last mom and pop bus companies in America, the Boise Winnemucca Stage Line, which went from Osuyas, British Columbia to Tijuana. I don't I can't tell you whether they're still in business, but that's neither here nor there. But it seemed like a good idea to me. And I the bus made what they call whistle stops or flag stops. If somebody wants the bus to stop, they put the flag up outside the general store or something. We stopped in Cottonwood, Idaho. It was the middle of the day. It was in the summer, and the bus driver, who was an old guy, who who uh, he looked like an old jockey. He had ridden, he'd driven this bus forever. He he told me the story about this uh, convent on the outskirts of town, and he said that's where they saved the memory of the poker bride. And I I I got to talking to him about this, and it, it occurred to me that this story was kind of interesting. The nuns at the convent had saved the possessions and. Uh, of this this uh, Chinese uh, woman who lived up in in, in uh, Idaho, and uh, that in fact was part of the launch. 
the, the whole thing seemed curious enough that it was worth digging into, and so it. And I, I, as I mentioned, I'm looking for a I'm looking for a story like Twain advises, where you can put a human face on something. One of the things about the Chinese experience in the 19th century West is that most of the people who came from China at the time of the Gold Rush were men. They were what would have been considered peasants. They were working class guys. They did not write a lot of things down. Uh, even the Library of Congress lamented at one point the absence of first-person documentation. Um, so I was casting around for, for some information about this this woman, and that's sort of how you get off and, off and running. I'll say more about how that goes, too, but uh, anyway. Let's start out with Polly's birth. So where was she born? Well, it, it, she, she tells people, interviewers um, that she was born um, in more than one place. So uh, that, there's, a good, there's a good question. Uh, that might be a good point to, in response to your, your question, a good point to mention that when you're looking at a story like Polly Bemis's, you really have to start at the end, not at the <laughs> beginning. And the, the reason for that is quite simply that we know a great deal about Polly Bemis. And you've read the book, but we've read, we know a great deal about her because of the end of her life in the 1920s and 30s. She was interviewed extensively. Uh, famous people like Sissy Patterson, probably one of the best known journalists in America, went to see her. Uh, There's a, a lot about her at the end of her life. She was kind of a, a celebrity, if you would, and, and a curiosity and, and mm-hmm. a living reminder of this boom time of the gold rush. Um, when you, when the further back you go, the harder it is to track information about her. Um, and, uh, that, that is, of course, uh, that's, that's inevitable. It didn't make her any less interesting to me. Um, uh, one, one of the things that Americans are often surprised to find about is that, uh, that prior to the gold rush, uh, gentlemen, that most Americans, if they had seen a Chinese person, they had seen Chang and Eng, who were the famous Siamese twins. The Bunker Brothers. Bunker Brothers, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they, had, they came into Boston in 1829 on a ship from uh, what today would be um, probably uh, Vietnam, but they were ethnically Chinese. Uh, and they were conjoined at the abdomen, and they were celebrated in the parlance of that world celebrated freaks, uh, what, what came to be called spectacle anthropology. And, uh, you know, spectacle anthropology was um, uh, exhibiting people who were curiosities, which today we would find uh, offensive, but uh, Americans would pay up to a dollar each, to, which was a day's wages, to, to have a look at these guys. And quite literally, pre-gold rush, most Americans have never seen a Chinese person. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind because there was a huge aspect of the Chinese being exotic, which uh, was part of the appeal of Chiang Neng and, and would later become part of the appeal of the Chinese as they came into this country in the mid-19th century. They came from the other side of the world. They physically looked different. They spoke a language that didn't bear any resemblance to uh, Western languages and, uh, and so many things about them. Uh, the, the, the Bunker Brothers, Chang and Eng, used to, part of, their, part of their show was doing things like using an abacus or eating with chopsticks just to, just to do something that people would have found curious. So that's to yeah. keep in mind about uh, how unusual the Chinese were. Uh, at the time of the gold rush, uh, which which also interests people, the Chinese began coming to the United States in in, in fairly large numbers, um, and their their labor was greatly needed. Um, the, the anti-Chinese sentiment that we would later associate with their presence in the West evolved over time. Uh, and that was because people were afraid they would take jobs away from them. I can say more about that. But initially, the Chinese were regarded as curiosities and uh, 
and necessary parts of the labor force. It was not such a big deal. Um, I always find it amazing uh, in talking about the Chinese in the West that uh, the Annals of San Francisco, which is sort of the oldest chronicle of San Francisco, was published in the early 1850s. I have a copy of it. They made a point of mentioning that Americans in San Francisco in the early 1850s liked Chinese food. And uh, they found it tasty. It was relatively inexpensive. And it, it sort of reminds you of the, because I think you could pick the case that people are still eating Chinese food yeah. in the United States today. And I, it's just, just there's a sort of curiosity aspect of this, which is, which is, uh, which is interesting. Um, it seems like uh, no matter where you go, no, how, no matter how small the town is, it, there's a Chinese restaurant there. Um, right. But let's, so, so Polly was born in China. In the yes, Pearl River born, Delta area, right? right? Yes. And Polly was born in China, and Polly was, like so many of her countrymen, young women, was part of a system that was essentially a sex slave trade. And there was a, a, a significant sex slave trade at that time. Um, and this did not, this involved the Chinese. The Chinese procurers would purchase pearls in the interior of China and bring them to Hong Kong or Canton, for example. Those were ports that were open uh, and sell them. And I, not to reduce it to the sort of grim economics of it, but your value um, increased as the further away you got from China. So a girl who was bought for, for $10, hypothetically, in China could be worth a couple of hundred dollars in Hong Kong and could be worth a thousand dollars in San Francisco. In a mining camp in Idaho or Nevada or up, you know, in California, she could be worth a, uh, a great deal of money. And that, that in fact, is part of, of that whole story is, is the, the selling of girls. We have a lot of documentation about that. People wrote about that a great deal. And I, I, I think that's probably a good point to mention is, is that one of the things to keep in mind in talking about the Chinese in the 19th century West, uh, guys, is that most of the people who are telling us things about the Chinese in the West, even if their intentions are good, some of them are missionaries, some of them are ship's captains, people in business, they're not Chinese. So what we have is we have somebody else's uh, observations, and that can somewhat cloud things if you follow. Yeah, the Chinese, um, the Chinese in the United States back in those days didn't leave a written history for anybody to be able to... Read. Well, no, not not very much so. Uh, one of the things that is happening in modern times, um, Steve, is, is that with the digitalization of documents, um, which is great for those of us who once used magnifying glasses and read microfilm, uh, with the digitalization of documents, you can find things that you might not have been able to find before. And that's great. And there's also there's a great deal of very interesting writing about the Chinese experience in just the last 20 years. Um, but prior to that, a lot of it was pretty much dependent on what somebody who wasn't Chinese was telling a reader. This is what I saw. This is what I, you know, sometimes they weren't even really sure what they saw. In, in The Poker Bride, for instance, I don't have an account of Polly Bemis's arrival in San Francisco. She, she came into Portland, Oregon, um, which was the second biggest port on the Pacific Slope for the importation of, of laborers and, and and uh, uh, girls like Polly. Um, so it was where, do, yeah, as we're moving I, towards uh, civil war on the east over African yes. slavery. Yes, we're right. importing hundred tens of thousands of slaves, sex slaves from China. Right, right. Onto the west coast. Interesting, isn't it? Right. Yes, it it is, and and the importation of of, of uh, I mean, I can, I can say more about this. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I mentioned this in this book, and that is, in fact, part so that people would understand that I'm not romanticizing some, some sordid and dreadful part of the history of, of the American experience, but that as, as late as the 19th, uh, in the early, early 20th century in, in Idaho, for example, I have some accounts of this, 
there were still disputes among Chinese criminals over who owned girls. And these were written about in great detail in the newspapers there. So again, the newspaper being the first draft of history, we have lots of newspaper accounts of things like that that are going on. Um, Americans at that point, uh, gentlemen, thought the Chinese were, were kind, it was kind of like watching, uh, uh, I don't know, some, some kind of like a, a gangster uh, movie or something. They found accounts of the Chinese and their various uh, 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 misadventures fascinating. But this this routinely appeared in the newspapers in, in Idaho and elsewhere was so disputes over what they they were still calling tongs, which were like societies, uh, secret societies, and they would just they would have a dispute over who owned a girl. Um, very common and 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 much romanticized and exaggerated, but at its base true. So anyway, so the the Chinese slave trade into the United States West began yes. much, much later than the African slave trade into the oh, country. Yes, right. And then it lasted a little longer, actually, didn't it? But it never involved as many people. And that might no. be why... <clears throat> oh, and then additionally, something that you write about in your book, which is so fascinating, is um, how these Chinese, if they died in the United States... Um, yes. Their ancestors, their descendants' family would come get them and take them back, right? Yes. Be- because of this belief that if they're right buried far from home on another place where their family can't tend to them, that they their spirits right. wander. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that so they come here, but then they yeah. their story almost is forgotten. Well, so right. many of them came to make money and made a little bit of money and went home. Uh, yeah. that there's quite a lot of that, um, at least in your book, the description of it, there's quite a lot of it. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, like it's like with anything, some of the early, uh, they call themselves sojourners often, and it was considered a bachelor society. You did not come with your family, mostly young men, and they came in what was called the credit ticket system, where somebody would pay for them to come, and then they owed them the price of the ticket. And they came, they were not slaves. They came to work off that debt, make a little money and go home. And some of them made a little money and went home. And then, of course, people back at home in China would say, well, so-and-so, he went to he went to Golden Mountain and he got rich. And there's all kinds of wonderful poetry, Chinese poetry, translated by Marlon Holm, which you can get in English, of the, of the uh, accounts of people coming to Golden Mountain and what they'd hoped for and um, and it's very, it's very, sort of very moving stuff. So the, the men from the East Coast would come out for the gold rush, and men from China came out for the gold rush. Right. Um, but they, they didn't bring their wives, very few women. Right. And, um, but that created a market for this like, sex drive. Yes, ab- it, it did. It, it, it absolutely did. Um, and you know, most of these, we have lots of descriptions. There's descriptions in, in the, um, the Poker Bride of these these mining boom towns, which I think probably folks who are in the West are familiar with, as you surely yeah, are. That's Some right. places exploded. They were huge. You'd have thousands and thousands of people someplace, and then boom, it'd all be gone because it was all a matter of whether there was any any gold in the ground. And uh that that was a very common. These were also places that were, and again, there's lots of descriptions of this in the book, places that were very violent um, and also places where there was no real law. Um, and so um, that's that's another thing to keep in mind. Well, um, it was interesting to read that um, in 1850, prostitutes were about one out of every five female residents of California and, yeah, then, and yeah. then when you get up into these Idaho mining camps, it's more like 25 prostitutes to one. So it, it would have been right. easy to discover who the prostitutes were. Right. Well, I mean, or other, I quote this in the book, but somebody commenting about this said, I mean, this is pretty grim, but they said, you know, in some of these places, there were no children. Um, people didn't bring their wives with them. And they said, so the people... They, they needed a they needed a whorehouse before they needed a school. I mean, that's the kind of thing people would routinely say. Why would we 
we don't need a school. We don't have any children. There were no children going to school here. Um, some of these places were pretty tough places. The town that Polly eventually wound up in, there was a place called Warren's, which is still at the end of the road in Idaho. And, and there's snow on the roads up there until early June. I can tell you I've seen that firsthand. <laughs> uh, it's one of those places that you see in the rural west, you know, where the, 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 the wind and the weather has blasted what paint there might have ever been on the sides of the buildings. So the places, it looks like a set to a Clint Eastwood movie, for God's sakes. Um, and there's, there's a hand, only a handful of people living up there, but uh, that's where they were. Um, Tell and, us how Polly ends up in Warren. Yeah, well, she appears to have wound up keeping a boarding house and cooking, but um, that's how she met Charlie. Charlie was a, was a gambler and a tough customer. He was from Connecticut. Uh, people who knew him said he never lifted anything heavier than a deck of cards. And uh, uh, this was, was, you know, these are are people who seem to come right out of Mark Twain or the the old short story writer Bret Hart, you know, the outcasts of Poker Flat. Uh, But they, in fact, were real people, and uh, they got to know each other. And the circumstances that were written about a great deal by people who knew them uh, were that that Charlie was shot by a disgruntled gambler and he would have died except that Polly nursed him back to health. And, um, I I think there probably is something to that. I I probably should mention here that one of the things that we know about Polly and why we know a lot about Polly and Charlie is that people who knew them at the end of their lives, in addition to the, to sister Alfreda Elsenson in, in Cottonwood, at the Benedictine Monastery, there were these two prospectors named Charlie Shep and Pete Klinkhammer. Klinkhammer was a German, and a lot of Germans and Roman Catholics up there. So they lived across the river from Charlie and Polly when they moved out of Warren down to the River of No Return, to the, to the Salmon River. And they are the reason that we know a lot of stuff, because they saved they saved their marriage license. They saved documentation related to them. And they, they believe that, that Charlie married Polly to keep her from being deported because she would have, the, the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act was robustly uh, being enforced and uh, people were being sent back to China for all sorts of reasons. I mean, that's, their, that's what they thought and that's what they said at the end of their lives. That's not an implausible thing to me. Uh, They also said they believed, and I think this is also true, which not to, to, is I'm not sure that Polly ever was actually in a brothel or a prostitute. And the reason for that is that that prostitution is is a line of work where you don't get old, at least in the 19th century West. Uh, Venereal disease was endemic. So I think what we're really talking about here, which in no way, changes things is that she was just lucky um and these things didn't think what could have happened to her did didn't happen to her so she wound up in this she obviously didn't come to the united states to go to graduate school so she was in the middle of nowhere and she talked at the end of her life in great detail about cooking and running a boarding house and all this stuff all of those things would have been necessary things in a place like that people needed a place to eat they needed some place to stay um, at the end of her life, she was a, you know, celebrated character in, in Idaho. So, so she is sold by her family, uh, yes. from a probably very, very poor family that couldn't afford right. to take care of their whole family she during famine and poverty. But she, she was sold by her family. Yeah. And then she sold a couple more times. We've, yes. um, I'm excited to hear about the poker match. The, right. any, any book called The Poker Bride, we've got to talk about this poker game. So yeah. She sold several times. Um, and, and for an amount that she said was $2,500, which, which would have made right. her a very high-priced uh, young woman of the time, yes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, and the other thing is, that we've, we've sort of touched on this, is that every time you were sold in the West, your value would have gone up. There's a lot written about that because it, you're, 
you're reducing these these pearls to a commodity. So, and that would have a lot to do with that's a lot, a lot to do with this. And also, we have a lot. There's a lot of this in the poker bride. Is that many of these girls despairing committed suicide, and there are many accounts in newspapers. Again, these are not these are not romantic stories or novels. There are many accounts in newspapers of of girls committing suicide. A lot of times, they would take a, a drug overdose. It's um, you you take a you use opium uh, anyway. It'll kill you, but um, that's that was that would have been very common. So her last owner, who was Chinese, allegedly lost her in a poker game to Charlie Bemis, who was a very well-known gambler. He and his father had come west just about the time of the Civil War, and they came west uh, pr- primarily because they did uh, they were draft dodgers, is my impression. But uh, anyway. <laughs> That's that's why they a lot of people came west to to not to avoid being in the. I mean, Mark Twain, who we know a lot about, uh, served two weeks in the Confederate Army and said he was very happy that he never saw a Union soldier. And then he went west, you know. So uh, going west to get away from the Civil War was fairly common. And uh, and that's so the the poker game is the event that is much mythologized, uh, but obviously. Holly and Charlie uh, came to know one another very well, and he married her. Her, 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 uh, her uh, there was a, a marriage license. They had a, they were, they were legally married, and this, uh, this is uh, uh, fairly unusual because you know miscegenation was uh, extremely uh, uh, frowned upon. In fact, interestingly, you very rarely encounter instances of white men marrying Chinese women, and certainly not. Chinese men marrying white women, if that makes any sense to you at all. But right. uh, it's a very, very unusual sort of character. Then the other thing, not not to not to, to uh, make too much of this, is they they really lived in an extraordinarily remote place, and because of that, they weren't on anybody's radar, so to speak. And that's why we know so much about. Polly and Charlie at the end of their lives, because it wasn't until the 1920s and 30s that we start to we start to know things about them. Um, and Polly hadn't been out of the mountains in 50 years when uh, Pete Klinkhammer and Charlie Shep brought her down to uh, Grangeville, Idaho, to see uh, an eye doctor. Her eyes were bad, and uh, anyway, she had never seen a railroad train. She'd never. I mean, she, there were a million things. She essentially had missed 50 years of the, of the 19th and early 20th century. So that's when she gets interviewed a lot. And that, that has a lot to do with her, her, uh, her stories. So she's, she's owned by um, a Chinese man who's known as um, Hong King. Yes. Or Big yes. Jim. And, and, right. And Jim and uh, Bemis... Uh, both play poker, and I guess this is um, Hong King or whatever his actual name is, which we don't yeah. know. I guess. Yeah. Um, owned her and had her for some purpose or another. That and he prized her as a something that right. was his property. And so once he's right. out of money, I guess um, the last thing he can throw on the Supposedly table. Bet her, right? Supposedly he he bet her. Uh, there might have been a difference between being, um, I'm not uh, making excuses for this kind of thing, but there might have been a difference between her being someone's concubine and being in a brothel. There would have been some substantial difference there. Um, and uh, I mean, we have fairly, we have many detailed accounts of going back up into the Idaho backcountry, which was a terrifically long trip in those days. Um, you would go up to Lewiston, Idaho, eventually, and then you'd go back in on the back of a pack horse. And we have, again, lots of accounts of what that world was like. It was a very colorful world um, and also very violent. And there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in, in that world, too. Americans are often surprised to find that Chinese outnumbered Caucasians uh, in significant numbers in, in remote places in the West at the time. So, uh, 
but they couldn't own a claim or land. They, they, they were marginalized in lots of ways, large and small, but there were a lot of Chinese in the West. And you mentioned the bone collectors. That's an interesting thing that people find uh, is that one thing a Chinese coolie did when he came to the United States, no matter what else was, he made arrangements that no matter what happened, his remains would be shipped back to China because the culture was ancestral in its in its focus, and it was imperative and uh, that you do that. Newspapers in the West routinely ran notices well into the 20th century from organizations in San Francisco looking for the remains of Chinese people so that they could be collected and sent back to China. This is, again, this is very, very common. Lots of accounts of that. Mark Twain wrote about that a great deal. Well, so one of the things that's so interesting about your book is is we get this um, history of the Chinese coming and the Chinese leaving, and um, the fact that they had no intention of assimilating into the American culture because they had no intention of staying. Yeah, and, I think and that's, that's probably part of the reason I assume why we have so many Chinatowns is because when they came over, they just stayed together. They did. They did. Um, Chinatown became a kind of iconic presence in in America. And uh, whether it was San Francisco or whether it's a very small place, I mean, Mark Twain has a celebrated dis- description of Chinatown in Virginia City, Nevada, uh, in uh, the early 1860s. Um, there's tons of, tons of, of, there's Chinatowns everywhere. And Part of it also was, you mentioned this before, but the Chinese food, Chinese restaurants, and also laundries. Chinese men did not do the laundry in China. But in the American West, if they were looking for something to do that didn't threaten somebody else's livelihood, they would open a laundry. And also, you don't need to speak a lot of English to do that. So this was extremely common wherever you, wherever you went. Uh, there would be Chinese laundries and and uh, and little uh, little restaurants. So they came over first um, for mining, came over yes. for the railroad, looking Correct. for work. Then first they, they mined the railroad, yes. Yeah. Right. The railroad later, and that was because they needed a lot of labor. Yep. And the women came over because they were bought and sold. And then, then the men start coming over for, as you describe, laundries and restaurants and anything else that they can right. do. Right. And then they almost disappear. They do. It's it's very interesting. And and again, there's a lot of this in the poker bride, which I thought I thought it was interesting was that a very common thing in the newspapers in the American West, not just in Idaho but everywhere, probably in Utah, in Nevada, in California. Uh, into the 20th century would be accounts of elderly Chinese miners coming in to the town or the county seat and they were looking to go back to China because, they, in fact, there, there were countless instances of this. There's a photograph of these two old guys in the book uh, who had been up in Pierce City in Idaho, up in the high country, for 50 years. And many of these guys, it tells us so much about that culture. They not they hadn't been anywhere. They had they ever seen a, a railroad train. When they saw a railroad train, it scared them so badly they they were afraid they were going to run off. Um, and they didn't speak any English. Imagine they'd spent half a century in America and they didn't they didn't speak English. But there was a good sized Chinatown in Lewiston, Idaho. So the authorities took them to the Chinese community and then they made arrangements. They what the often they would do in in the accounts that I have read is. You, they would pay for their passage to go back to China because, to be perfectly blunt, these guys were essentially a ward of the county at that point. And it was just easier to buy them a ticket uh, from Seattle to uh, some port in China. So there are lots of accounts of that in the West, lots of accounts. Many, many people just showing up in town. Um, uh, yeah, underlining this story is... is um quite a tragic story, this tragic story of, of Chinese coming here, um, partly because we desperately needed their labor, 
Yes. And women being sold here into sex, sex trade, and then, and then all of the discrimination that rises against them after they're here. Right. And these right. acts of Congress and everything else that tried to push right. them out. Yeah, I think. Well, the, didn't, yeah. Is, wasn't there? Aren't aren't the Chinese the only ethnic group ever to be named? in legislation as being barred from the United States. There's a period of about 70 years um, yeah. where they were unable to. Immigrate. Chinese Exclusion Act yep. plus others. Yep. Right. No, they, 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 a lot of those things were on the books well into the 20th century. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah. then, and then you get Polly, who, after being all by herself practically um, in the middle of um, – the wilderness in Idaho at this little mining spot on the side of the Salmon River. <clears throat> when she comes out, and as you've described her interviews and everybody that's talking to her, there was nothing about her life that seemed tragic to her. It just seemed like normal. It's what she would have expected her oh, life to be like. Oh, I know. I, I, I've thought of that many times. And I, I have to tell you, having been a journalist for a long time, I mean, this is something you encounter when you're doing something like this is, you know, you, you all these people talk to her as you familiar with the last couple of chapters of the book they're all she's constantly being interviewed whatever and and I, you're all and i'm always thinking when i'm looking at these things i'm thinking to myself well, why didn't you ask her any questions about like people just asked her a lot of times sort of very goofy questions that were very sort of not very important and i, I was like i would like to know this or whatever yeah but, and uh you know she she was not 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 to reduce it to this, but she was really a kind of a, an extraordinary survivor of an experience that would have killed most people. Um, and she lived to be 80, which was a good age given what she had experienced. Um, yeah, and the last, um, what was it, nine years, 10 years, 11 years of her life, she was she lived as a widow because Bemis died. Right, what, he in died. 1922, and she lived to 1933. right. right. Well, she lived across the river from Shep and Clinkhammer, and there, there's a good deal of account of this, because we know a lot about Shep and Clinkhammer. They kept what they used to call a ranch diary, which is kind of like a ship's log, and it's just jam-packed with information. It's fascinating. Lots of references to Polly. They were across the river from her, and what they basically did was they agreed to take care of her, which they did. They were very kind to her, and they were very fond of her. But they also had an, another motive. <laughs> They were afraid somebody would jump that claim. And so uh, they didn't want that to happen. So what she did was she legally agreed to give them her land. And and then they, in turn, um, they, in turn, took care of her. Uh, and uh, there are many references. Their ranch diary went on forever and ever. I've, I've actually seen the whole thing. And uh, it's uh, it's not really it's it's it's. Just little little bits and pieces. Uh, Shep and Klinkhammer were not prose stylists, so you're not reading Mark Twain. You're just reading their little notations about the stuff that they saw and whatever whatever they did. They're very busy guys. They're always doing stuff because they were essentially uh, back to the land homesteaders. You know, um, this requires a lot of work to be living in a place like that. Um, so. Anyway, that's that's why we know so much about her, was, uh, was well, Shep and Klinkham. Well, as I look at this uh, book, and I think of the tragic parts of the story, uh, of which it's it, it could be described as this huge um, tragedy. Um, and then as I look at the other side of it as being um, the story about this one particular woman, as you said, from Mark Twain, we're not writing about Everybody, right. we're writing about one person. Um, I see this um, this person that must have been a wonderful, wonderful person to know to have her neighbors take care of her and and yeah. for for, it, for her to to say that my life was good. I had a great life, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's a very good point, Steve. You know, people who talk to her at the end of her life in Idaho frequently mentioned what what a what a nice person she was and how kind she was. And she loved children and she loved to do favors for people and cook and so forth. She, she had a, a very good heart and uh, she was enormously popular. That's not an overstatement. 
but she was also a curiosity, which we have to remember. By the time she had outlived hate, and uh, by the time people knew her, you know, the the days of the old the old days of the gold rush that was ancient history. Um, yeah, I think that my biggest takeaway from your book, uh, Christopher, is um, a deep appreciation for what the early Chinese immigrants did for us in this country, uh, what they suffered through, and, right. uh, and how, and we've got a lot of Chinese um, students and some faculty members on our campus that live in our community. Um, right. I, I think Chinese food is one of my favorite things to eat. Um, but this book gave me a much deeper appreciation for them as individuals, their culture, the heritage that they have, and how that heritage interweaves with us. And as, and as I think about how they were treated, uh, right. and it sounds like uh, Charlie Bemis treated Polly very well, as did her neighbors, but as I think about how they were treated as a whole, it causes me to, to think today, as we look around about um, some anti-immigrant sediments in this country, and they, yes. they seem yes. to be replaying the same themes. We need their labor, and now we're worried they're going to take away our jobs. <laughs> right. And well, the, I mean, and they're different. That's, that's, so go yeah, on. No, that's the interesting aspect of this because I mean, I you know, it's uh, there's a the New York Times has reported in great detail recently of you know countless instances of anti-Chinese sentiment in this country connected to the situation in Wuhan. I mean, so a lot of these things are just irrational, but then that's fear. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Wuhan. So we, we have a partnership, Southern Utah University has a partnership with the university in Wuhan. And, and so we have, uh, faculty and students, um, and, uh, and I've been there to their, in fact, I was there last summer. Um, but here's an interesting piece that has nothing to do with this book, (laughs) but Interesting to me that with our relationship with this university in Wuhan and with the, uh, the pandemic that started in Wuhan, that the president of the school in Wuhan sent me a letter checking to see if we were okay, uh, expressing mm-hmm. his interest and concern for us before I sent one to him. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I? That's yeah. just that's just fascinating. He's the one that's struggled the most. Yeah. And he's more concerned about us. So I this yeah. is one of the beautiful things about these um very personal histories is the more right. we read and the more we travel and the more we get to know uh people one on one um I, I, the the better the world is. I guess that's the way to say it. The well, be, the better we treat others, the more sympathetic well, as I mentioned, that we, we probably know more about the Chinese experience in the West now than we did, and we probably will continue to know more. But as you correctly pointed out, the kinds of folks who were coming here at the time of the gold rush, people were not writing books like I was a coolie on the Central Pacific Railroad. Or, I mean, they, they're, they, don't, they didn't leave us that kind of documentation for the most part. Um, they were poor that, people, uneducated, yeah. living through famine, coming here to try to find a way. Right. And many of them were illiterate, too, which, although not all of them, but some of them would have been illiterate. Um, so there's no evidence that Polly could write. Uh, she signed her signature, her name in Chinese, but I had people examine it who were native speakers, and they weren't sure what it was. They thought that maybe she had been taught to write her name because that would have been something people would have done, but because of the character didn't make any sense to them. But I mean, who knows what that means? Um, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for your time. Um, well, the Poker Bride much. is a book I'd recommend to anyone. Yeah. Where can, where can our listeners who may not have yet read the book, where can they pick it up? Is it just available everywhere? Yeah, Amazon, it's still, there's, it's in paperback. Amazon has The Poker Bride, and, and they also have Orphans Preferred, which is the history of the Pony Express. And uh, 
I don't. Maybe the bookstores are opening up, and I uh, hope so. you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they'll uh, they'll stock the book. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's generally. Um, uh, so fair, I, fairly, yeah. Christopher, I have one last question for you. Sure. Uh, in all your investigation and uh, some of the things you've described, had you been given an opportunity to meet with Polly Bemis, what would have been the most important question you would have liked to have asked her? Well, I sort of alluded to that, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm not like uh, being critical of the people who talked to her or interviewed her, but the first thing I would, what I would have been curious about if I'd had a chance to actually talk to someone like that was to have a much clearer understanding of her origin story. Because um, if you notice in the book, she frequently seems to tell more than one account of this. And it's like she was from Shanghai, that she was from Hong Kong. It's all it's very murky. And uh, of course, you have to also consider that by the time she was being interviewed, she hadn't been in China in more than 50 years. Um, so, and, and she uh, left as a child. Yes. And also, you know, it goes without saying that people who knew her at the end of her life said that she really couldn't speak Chinese very well, in part because she didn't have anybody to talk to. Um, there's an account of these old Chinese miners going up to see her in at her place on the river, and um, it wasn't clear that, I mean, there are dialects of Chinese. It wasn't clear that she could really talk to them anymore. Her English was uh, described as extremely fractured, too. So, And again, it's, a lot of this is remote. She's in a remote place, and uh, she had a very good head for figures, according to people who knew her, and was a great poker player and gambler. And could, so, um, anyway, uh, quite, a, quite a, a curious lady. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today, joining us by phone from Baltimore, Maryland, Christopher Corbett, the author of The Poker Bride, which both Scott and I recommend for your summer reading list. If you haven't had a chance, make sure you pick that up and read the story of Polly Bemis. Thank you, Christopher, for joining us, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.